morning, church. Good to see you today. Great to worship together. Thank you, worship team, for uh, for leading us this morning. Before I get started, we are going to be in the book of Malachi in just a minute. As you turn there, let me share a couple things. First of all, I want to to thank all of those who participated in the the Beauty Overflowing weekend. You probably see some with the uh, with that even came and have the shirts on. Uh, I heard it was a, a great weekend for the the. Girls in the student ministry, we are so grateful for them and for their participation. It was a, a weekend to consider uh, identity in Christ, and uh, I'm so thankful for uh, all who helped put it together. I know that there, it took the effort of a lot of people to, to make it happen, so thank you, particularly to, to Leah White. Uh, I know that she was uh, mainly the coordinator for that event, and so we're, we're grateful that, uh, that it went well. And uh, appreciate everyone who participated. Also, I want to take just a minute before we... Uh, before we go into the message this morning and probably skate out on a little bit of thin ice for a little bit, if that's okay. Hopefully I've been here long enough now that you, you all know my heart well enough to know that, that, uh, that I, don't, I don't speak about all of the current events that affect the world all the time. I mean, I, I'm primarily a, a preacher. I, I, I preach God's Word. But there are times that things happen in the culture that's like, you know what, we, we, need to, we need to kind of bring that in and give that a little bit of consideration. And some things have been happening that... that uh, and it's not the first time that we've done this. We've, we've looked at things before. But some things have happened this last couple of weeks that have just really gotten my attention. And I feel like they've, they've, they've come in to the, to the, the, uh, the realm of, of consideration by Christians. And I'm, I'm speaking about uh, the political process that's happening uh, in front of us right now. Um, what, a, what a circus it is, first of all, right? I mean, we look at what goes on. And I, I say the same thing every four years. If, if you know me very well, you've probably heard me say it. I always say, is this the best we can do? I mean, we're the greatest country on earth. And this, this, is, this is what it looks like every, every four years. And so the reason I want to touch on this now is that it seems to me that as a, a follower of Christ, that, that we go through situation after situation where, where the people of faith are criticized, their views are, are maligned at times, uh, called into question, said that they're, that they may be, uh, uh, uh archaic, and, uh, and it, it just seems like we get pounded. Not by everybody all the time, I get that, but in thinking about the culture as a whole, there's a lot of criticism, right, that sometimes we see directed at the body of Christ. Except every four years, right? Because all of a sudden there's an election. And there's a group of people that want the, the church to, to, to vote for them, want the, 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 the people of, of Christ. And, you know, both sides, I'm not talking about one side. I'm talking about both sides then begin to engage uh, people of faith and, and want them to be on their side. And uh, it's very frustrating for me. As I look at it, because I, I feel like there's a lot of insincerity in that process. That, yeah, right. That, that's a very obvious observation, I suppose. But a lot of insincerity because it seems that there's so much criticism and, 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 and we see issues that aren't addressed by, by leaders that, that, that mean a lot to us. And, and then when they come around for an election, all of a sudden, you know, we were in Christian colleges, we're inviting pastors to come and stand up at the podium and, and make statements in support of particular candidates. And it's a bit frustrating to me. And I, I want to say as a pastor and as a shepherd of this congregation that I believe now more than ever, we need to be discerning. 
We need to be discerning as we look at the landscape of what's happening because there are a lot of people all of a sudden that begin to, to use Christian language and Christian uh, words and, and things and, uh, and we need to be discerning about what that means for us. I am fully supportive in us being engaged in the process. In fact, I think it's a responsibility as a Christian, as a citizen, that we need to be informed of what's going on. We need to be engaged. I realize that it could be, we, we can get to the point where it's just like, what good is it? I, I don't know that I want to be a part of it. It's, 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 it's messy and so forth. But I do think that our voice needs to be heard. There's some important things that happen through the government on, a, on every level. And we're called to pray for them and to encourage them. I believe that, 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 that we need to be uh, informed and active in the process. We need to look at, 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 at the impact that that has upon the nation, upon things like the Supreme Court uh, appointees. There's, there's a lot there. Uh, thinking about uh, education, thinking about military, thinking about security. All these kinds of issues are very important. But it is frustrating to me when people from both sides begin to, to bring the church into it and in ways that I think are disingenuous. And, and I know I've got to be so careful, and you're not hearing me. I'm, I'm not about to say... In case you're wondering, I'm not about to endorse anybody. Okay, that's, that's not my role. Uh, I, I feel that, that, that I preach God's Word, and hopefully you'll be able to, to take your walk with God and what you see in God's Word, and you see what's happening, and you're able to, to make those decisions. But I am frustrated by some of what I've seen in the last few weeks. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to pick on both sides for just a little bit, and then we're going to go into Malachi. Okay? So can I do that for just a minute? First of all, I, I, I saw this last week um, at a gospel music um, a, a presentation of some kind that the leading candidate for the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton, was in attendance. And she was asked to speak to the gospel music group. And uh, we, we like gospel music. We like music that speaks about, about, about the Word of God and our faith. But to have her up there talking about, you know, his eye being on the sparrow, and yet I'm, I'm looking at her, and I've known her for a long, long time. I went to college in Arkansas, Okay. Um, we, 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 we knew the Clintons before, before America did, right? I mean, we knew, we knew them in Arkansas, uh, somewhat at a personal level. Um, but it's frustrating to me to see us talk about the eye is on the sparrow. And I want to say, you know, God's eyes are also on babies in the womb. And it's important to me that, that if someone's going to be speaking words of faith and speaking about gospel and speaking about Christian values, that we consider policies and principles that are in line with those kinds of statements. It's very frustrating to me because I feel like it's pandering to you and me as Christians when people people are, are making those statements. Uh, let, let, let me pick on the front runner of the Republicans for a little bit while we're at it, okay? Because he went to Liberty University recently, Christian College. I respect the college, okay? And he, he, he made some statements where he wanted to quote Scripture from the book of 2 Corinthians. Did you hear that? It's a little hard for me to get real swayed by his, his, his level of, of uh, sincerity with Scripture when he, doesn't, when he doesn't quote from it properly. And then to, to make statements such as, um, I've never asked God for forgiveness. Well, you know, the core of the gospel message of being a Christian is that we come to Christ for forgiveness. And so, I know you always sit out there wondering, what am I, what am I doing? I'm just expressing a little bit of frustration, or, or, or a lot, and... I'm asking you to please be discerning. Please be discerning. People are coming out and they're using a lot of words. Young people, you're going to see everybody out there, not all of them, but most of them are going to be talking about their faith and about their Christianity. And, and, and the last thing that we want to do is, we, is, 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 is be pulled into something that, that redefines what our faith is for us. We need to look biblically 
scripturally what it means to be a follower of Christ as we use those words and we pledge commitment to Him. And so, uh, yes, it is, it is frustrating. It's part of our process. I realize that not every president has ever, that's ever been has been a born-again Christian. I know that we'll have that in the future again at some point as well. It's not a requirement. But as people of faith, these are important issues to us. And so we do need to be engaged. We need to be informed of, of what's happening around us. Um, one verse of Scripture that struck me this week is out of Proverbs chapter 29. Um, before I read that, let me tell you, one of the reasons why I wanted to say all this is that one of the leading pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention stood at the podium of one of the candidates this week. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. I'm not, I'm not going to get all the details, but it's frustrating to me to see that even even clergy in our own denomination need to have some discernment about what we are coming alongside and endorsing. Okay? Proverbs 29.2 When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Do you hear that? I believe we've seen both sides of that as a country. Looking at a big perspective. And we're at a, at a place now where it's as important as ever that, 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 we, that, we, that we look to righteousness, that we hunger and thirst for it, that we seek it for our land. And I think one of the, 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 the reasons we see such a mess right now politically is because the churches of America are a mess. They're a mess. And because, because they are a mess, it's, it's reflected out there in what's happening. And so as we move into Malachi today... I think there is a connection because if the churches in America are centered back upon strong faith in the Lord, a strong commitment to his word, and and it's it's genuine, it's authentic. It's not just going through emotions. It's not just ritual. It's not it's not for 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 other reasons or ulterior motives. It's genuine, authentic faith. If, If the churches in America would once again place God at the forefront I believe some of these other things would be impacted in a major way. So we look at Malachi, and I would say that the the statements that I've just made, whether you think I've I've taken too much liberty or not, I I just ask for you to give me a little little, uh, uh, ability to, to, to speak to some issues and comment on them of the day. But I think you would agree with me that that. Moving closer to the Lord, moving our church, asking God to to help the churches of our land to be restored and renewed in our walk with Him will make a difference in our country. Yes, in the political system. Yes, in the educational system. Yes, in 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 the business world, in the family structure. In the military. All the different areas will be impacted if we have our hearts in tuned once again with the Lord. And so I believe that's, that does tie into what we're looking at today. Because in Malachi's day, he was addressing a half-hearted people. A nation that was spiritually anemic. And he was addressing them. Now the good news is, he addressed them because there was hope of restoration. There was hope of renewal. He wasn't just writing them off. And so I wouldn't just write off what we're seeing either. I would say there is hope. That there can be restoration of God's people. A restoration and a renewal among the congregations of our country. And we should be praying and, uh, and working towards that end. I would also say that I don't believe that all of our hope is laid into an election. Right? Our hope is, 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 is greater than that in God. And so, yes, the elections are very important. I hope I've already communicated that. But they, they are not our Savior. Does that make sense? 
Our salvation is in the hands of God. And so we look to him and we want him to be pleased with uh, with these matters as well. Okay, enough of that. Let's go to today's message. Let's move into Malachi chapter one. We're going to begin in verse six and we'll go all the way into verse 14. When you hear the word mediocre or lukewarm or half hearted, are those words that, that are that are positive? Would you ever want to be described as a half-hearted student, a half-hearted employee, a, a, a lukewarm worshiper? Those aren't positive words, are they? I was thinking about that this week and thought, what, what would that look like if we were to say that there was an athlete that was not fully committed? Maybe half-hearted, mediocre, you know, that'd be the kind of athlete that maybe they have so much talent they don't feel like they have to, to practice or train, right? You've probably seen some of those. Or maybe it's the, the kind of athlete that just doesn't quite quite go all the way to the end fully committed but kind of kind of lays back and doesn't doesn't quite finish i i I always get a kick out of these guys that uh that are on their way into scoring a touchdown they start celebrating a little too early you know what i'm talking about have you seen seen that happen uh there's a picture of a guy that is just uh, just about to make a touchdown and uh, look what he's doing he's like at the 10 yard line he's already pointing out to the stands right can you guess what's just about to happen to this guy (laughs) yeah you can watch the video he's 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 not going to make it Celebrating too early, half, half-hearted, if you will. Uh, what, about, what about a student that's half-hearted? Maybe someone that just doesn't give a lot of attention to studying and not really worried about those grades, right? And uh, maybe is smart enough, bright enough to just get by. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I came across an example of one that, that I thought was kind of a half-hearted test taker. Uh, must have been a geometry test or <laughs> math or something. Talk about mediocre and half-hearted, right? Here it is. Find X, right? How many of you all work with a colleague? No, I, don't, I better not ask that question. <laughs> Hypothetically, what if, you, what if you work with someone that, that, that doesn't get the job done? A mediocre, half-hearted worker, right? Maybe you're always coming alongside trying to finish their work because they didn't get it done, trying to motivate them because they, they, they don't seem to have the commitment that they need on the job. Uh, let me share a picture of that, too. This is a guy that, uh, a person that <laughs> just, just couldn't quite get out of the truck, right, to, to move that branch out of the way. And can you imagine all the people driving down the road trying to swerve around this line after the, the branch has been moved? Well, I'm, 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 I'm being facetious, but what, what about half-heartedness when it comes to our walk with God? Half-hearted worshiper. Does that, could that ever happen? Where someone's just not, not as engaged as they once were? Where, where, uh, where, where even, even coming in a worship service, we, we, we happened to, to have the worship cam going and we snapped a picture of, of someone that was a little half-hearted in their worship. Do we have that picture? There he is, yeah. Yeah, that was first service. You can kind of tell by... I'm kidding. That's a joke that wasn't here. As we think about worship, oftentimes we're, we think mainly about singing, don't we? And singing is a part of our worship. But a year ago, when we looked at, 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 at worshiping even in our work, we, we, were, we were looking at the idea that, that worship is all of who we are. All that we give to God when we serve, when we when we work, when we're in our home. It's not just between 11 and 12 on Sunday morning that there's a totality in our worship. There's a connection between Sunday morning and the rest of the week. And so as we talk about worship this morning, and as we think about it in the context of Malachi's day, going to a temple and worshiping, I want us to to make the application a little broader to our entire walk with God. And whether He is at the center of how we think and how we interact with others. 
and how how it impacts even even the time we spend singing and worshiping and and opening up God's word. Because in Malachi's day, there was there was a problem with this half heartedness. Last week, we started a brand new series in the book of Malachi. I told you that it's the end of the Old Testament. It's the conclusion of the Old Testament. But it also is a connection to the New Testament. It's a conclusion all the way to the point that Malachi was the last one to speak to the nation of Israel on God's behalf. And then there would be a silence for how long? Do you remember what we said? 400 years of silence. But the connection is the prophecy to, to the Messiah. The connection that, that, that another one would be coming. And so we, we see that, that Malachi serves in both capacities. It was written to a people who were going through a very difficult time. They were discouraged. They were demoralized. They'd given up in so many ways. Their nation had been uh, uh, in, in, in captivity. They'd been taken away from their houses, away from their farms, away from their temple. They were placed in a foreign land. And about 70 years prior to Malachi's writing, they came back. And things just weren't like they used to be. And these people were suffering. They even had a, uh, a Persian governor that was over them. Their farms were not producing well. They'd rebuilt the temple, but it was nothing like it had been in in Solomon's day. And so they were discouraged. And they began to question God. And the first question that they gave that God addressed was whether or not He loved them anymore. Remember that? And because they questioned God's love for them, their love for God waned. And their love for one another uh, also was not what it should be. And it impacted their marriages and their homes. And it impacted, even as we'll see today, their worship. We said that Malachi, even though it's four chapters, it has six clear divisions. Um, six disagreements that technically they're like called rhetorical disputations because because there involves a question, a back and forth, where, where the prophet comes in and says, here's a problem. And the people, the people question the prophet by saying, what do you mean by that? What do you mean that's a problem? And then he goes and gives them an, uh, an answer. And today, when we look at the disagreement over, over worship, we're going to see that they make two questions about this issue. And so, uh, so I invite you to, uh, to verse 6. We're going to see a picture here of, of worshipers, of followers who are half-hearted. Um, I know that, that Malachi is a hard-hitting book, but I want to keep going back to pointing out the thread of hope that is found here. Because if God was not a God who restored, and God was not a God who would renew, there would be no reason that He would have even reached out to the people in that time. So even though the words are hard-hitting, I think we should listen to them, see how they apply to us today, and then recognize that He is a God that wants to renew our walk with Him. Because I think we would all admit, just as we did last week, that there were occasions where we might question the love of God, and the reason things happen, circumstances and so forth, there could also be those seasons that we go through where our, our hearts just aren't as full with, with, uh, with, with enthusiasm for worshiping Christ, for having Him at the forefront of our minds throughout the week. And so maybe God will use this today. The, uh, the central theme of this part of the text is that the people of the time had forgotten the object of their worship. That's the central theme that we'll see. And so God uses Malachi to come in and address that by reminding them of who God is. Reminding them of the object of their worship. And folks, I think that is something we certainly can relate to. That if we get reminded of the greatness of God, 
that that will impact not just our time coming together and worshiping, but it impacts us even as we go about the rest of our week by having a clear picture of the greatness of God. So I'm going to give you two principles that I think will help our focus just as it did in their day. The first one is about God's nature. The weak should recognize the nature of God, the magnitude of His nature. Look at verse 6 with me. There's a couple of words that are used here that describe God that help us get a, a good understanding of who He is and how we should respond to Him. And again, this is from Malachi. He says in verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master... Where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. So you see who it's written to? Written to religious leaders, spiritual leaders and worshipers. But you say, so he makes a statement. Here is the question. How have we despised your name? We'll look at the answer to that in just a minute. But look at the titles first of all. He's referred to as a father. Now, I know when we talk about the fatherhood of God, that that, that that means something depending upon the type of father that we had or as an earthly father. I realize that that, that is something that, that is considered because we think, what kind of father did I have? Did I have a good father? Did he provide? Did he care? Did, did he say words like, I'm proud of you and I love you? Was he that kind of father or was he another kind of father? Maybe that was absent or maybe that was abusive or, or harsh. We realize that not every earthly father is a picture of the heavenly father. But how do we see the heavenly father through the eyes of a, of a, of a follower of Christ? We see him as one who has loved, who has provided, who has cared. I mean, if, if someone were to ask you this week, if God is your heavenly father, how, how, has he, how has he been a father to you? What words would you use? How would you describe the love that he has lavished upon us? How he has given sacrificially for us. So we see that he is a father. And oftentimes when we think about God being a father, we think of it from the context of what we receive. But in this case, the prophet is using the phrase to remind them of what they owe to him. Even thinking back to the commandment to, to honor your father and mother. Right? That's a responsibility of the child to the father. Here we see he ties that in and says, if if I am a, a son honors his father, if I am a father, where is my honor? Now, we think about that in the context of worship. We think about, about that in the, in the idea of, 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 of how we perceive who God is. And this word honor is a Hebrew word kavod. And if, if you look at it, it's a really interesting word because it, it could also be translated, he is heavy. You think, what does that mean? How, heaviness. Well, in the, in the ancient language, it's speaking about a weightiness. That there is so much respect and honor for this position that there is a weightiness about it. And folks, I think it's important that we think about that as Christians. Because that may be one of the problems that we have in the churches of today. Is that we've lost that perspective of God, that that weightiness, that reverence, that honor that we're seeing spoken of here uh, may be languishing. From that, it, it brings about a half heartedness 
If there's no honor, you're just half-hearted in, in the way that you serve, the way that you, that you worship. G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary, instead of using the word half-hearted, he used the word lukewarm. Listen to what he said. Lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. It is worse than not even believing God. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Why? Because lukewarmness says, God, I believe in you, but you just don't inspire me. You just don't excite me. So it's, it's, giving, it's giving service with our lips that he exists, but it just hasn't really moved us in our hearts. That's where we get back to this idea of recognizing the honor that is due him. The next word there is master. And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. As we read through this section, we're going to see this phrase, Lord of hosts, used repeatedly. And we, it's probably not a phrase that we speak of when we talk about God. Lord of hosts. He is, he is my Lord of hosts. We might say Savior. We might say Lord, Heavenly Father. But Lord of hosts is an interesting statement because it's talking about the heavenly host. The, 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 the angelic host. It's a, it's a word that talks about victory. That He is the God of angels, an angelic host, an angelic army, if you will, and He is the God of them. He is a God of victory. And so it, it, it ties in this word reverence or fear. In fact, reverence can be described as a feeling of profound awe and respect. To think, here He is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of the heavenly hosts, the Lord of hosts. Now, when I was in seminary, I struggled a little bit with this idea of, of fearing God. Do you see in our text here where it uses the word fear? If you're reading ESV or King James, you might see the word fear, to fear God. And uh, I can remember an Old Testament professor of mine. This is 20 years back. He was, he was talking about if, if God were to show up in our classroom that day, that none of us would be sitting in the desks any longer, that we would all be on our, our faces in, in front of him. And I thought, I, I don't really know if I agree with that. That just, that seemed, that, that was a little different for me to think if God were to come, I, thinking of him as a loving savior, a loving father, why would I be, why would I be in fear? And so I talked to a friend of mine, his name is Mike, and you know, two budding young seminarians with all the bright ideas, right? We, we talked to each other and figured we were probably right. So we went and talked to the professor afterwards, and he, <laughs> he was very patient with us. But he reminded us of the greatness of God and how different he was. And, 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 and thinking about encounters that people like Isaiah had. Do you remember Isaiah's encounter? Or, or thinking about even when the disciples... When they saw Jesus calm the waves, do you remember what happened? They were struck with what? Fear. <laughs> They're bowing down before the Lord. And even, even in Revelation, when, when the Apostle John had the, the, the vision, and he was only standing in front of an angel, but, but what struck him? Fear. And what happened? He fell to the ground. And what did the angel say? Don't worship me. Get up. Right? But even in those contexts, there was this, this idea of, of he's, he's different than I am. God is different than I am. And, and that's where I think that this idea of, of fearing God is a very healthy, healthy thing. Very biblical idea. Again, you have to look at the fear in the right context. It's not meaning fear in the midst of punishment. Because as 
as blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ, it's not punishment, but there is still that, that separation of just how great He is. And we don't want to lose that reverence. We don't want to lose that awe. We don't want to lose that fear. Psalm 89, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord. You see, half-hearted worship begins when people stop thinking rightly about the nature of God. But when we are reminded and when we come back to that full biblical picture of God's greatness, then our worship and our commitment begins to follow because we understand that He and His position must be understood. Secondly, not just His nature, also His name. And we're going to pick back up at the end of verse 6 because He asked the question and it talks a lot about the name of God. O priests who despise My name, But you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Jump down to verse 12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, that its food may be despised. Verse 13, you say, what a weariness this is. You get what they're saying? How boring this is. I am worn out. I'm weary of worshiping. Keep reading. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Exclamation point. Shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord. All right. So we see that they despise the name of God. They ask a question. How have we despised your name? The response. You offer defiled food on my altar. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then their question goes, well, how have we defiled you? And he answers again by saying that you are despising the table of the Lord. Now, this is the altar. This is the place where people go to worship their Lord by bringing an offering of repentance. By, by recognizing that they have sinned and they were to bring an offering. It's always been that there must be a penalty, a punishment for, the, for, for sin. And so God would provide a system in the Old Testament time where they would bring an animal. Now, what animal were they to bring? They would bring the very best, right? Unblemished. In fact, there's, there's even uh, passages, Exodus 22, Leviticus 22. There's very specific ways on, on what it is that they are to bring. Now, as a side note, why was it to be unblemished? It was to mean something to them, right? It was something that was important. But it was also foreshadowing... Another sacrifice, the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices, which, of course, was Jesus Christ. 
unblemished because he was without sin. And Hebrews tells us that he was the sacrifice once and for all. So listen, when we read the Old Testament and we see the sacrificial system of that day, it is not only dealing with that time, it's also pointing to a future time. And one that we are now looking back upon with the perfect, sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because those sacrifices represented the coming Messiah, who we would know as the Son of God, who was also referred to as the Lamb of God, because He would be fulfilling that, we see how important it was to God. But what were the people bringing? Did you read what they're bringing? Were they bringing their best? Were they bringing the unblemished? No. They were bringing what really wouldn't sell anyway, right? This one's not going to bring as much money in the market, so maybe I'll bring this one to the altar. This one is, is diseased. This one has is, is been injured in the field. Some commentators speculate that they might have even been at times bringing carcasses out of the field. Oh, we lost one out of the flock today. I'll bring that one to the temple for my offering. That's where it got down to, to that point. Their hearts weren't in it. And God wasn't satisfied because it didn't matter to them. They were just giving the leftovers. They were giving what had no value to them. And it's, it's intriguing to me because these same animals, God told them not to eat them because it might make them sick. If you go back into Exodus chapter 22, there were some standards by what you were to eat. And if there was an animal that had been torn in the field or injured, attacked, Killed in the field and then it starts decaying, right? And someone comes upon the animal and they go, oh, we've, we've lost this. Let's go ahead and, and cook it and eat it. Well, the Lord knew that this, this could be something very dangerous for a person. And so look what he said. You shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. What are you supposed to do with it? Throw it out to the dogs. Now let's bring that back to Malachi's time. Because the animals that they were bringing to the altar were really the animals that were to go where? To the dogs. They were offering the equivalent of dog food on the sacrificial altar. Was God impressed? Not at all. In fact, He was, he was rejecting. He was rejecting that offering. We're going to look at verse 10 in a minute. I skipped it intentionally. But it's, it's, it's very clear that God was not pleased. If the gift meant little to them, it was going to mean little to God. He even says in verse 8, offer that to your governor. Think the governor wants your dog food? Don't think so. But you're willing to bring it to the Lord of hosts. You're willing to bring it to the Heavenly Father, the Master. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, David wanted to make an offering to the Lord. There was a plague going on in the land and he felt that it would be important to go and make an offering to the Lord and ask God to, to, to heal the land. And so he was looking for a place where animals could be sacrificed and, and they could be an expression of, of repentance. And he found, he found a man named Arona who had a threshing floor and who had oxen and, and he was willing. Let's just pick up 2 Samuel 24, verse 21. Arona said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? King David came to his property. And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arona said to David, let my Lord, the king, the king, take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice. Here are threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen. You can even use these for wood. 
So you've got the the space, you've got the wood, you've got the animals. And he's saying to the king, take it. It's yours. But what does David say? No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Do you see the contrast there between the people in Malachi's day and King David? He had a heart where he wanted to truly sacrifice. He wanted it to cost him something. He wanted it to be something that was important to him because in doing so, it would be important to God. That's the difference. The difference between half-hearted worship and one whose heart is right and full and focused upon the Lord. I can remember several years ago when I was uh, an associate pastor in St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, right out of seminary. So we're talking about 1996, 1997. And one of my roles was to uh, to help the the, uh, the Sunday school ministry. And we were getting a little office set up. We were getting all the attendance records and things put on computers. And, and uh, one of the men in the church was helping me. His name was Harold. And, and he said, you know, if we're going to have a computer back here, I've got a computer desk I'll bring. And uh, we can we can set it up. He said, we're, we just bought a brand new one. And we've got this other one that's still usable. Why don't I bring it in and we'll, we'll, we'll use it? I said, that'd be great. And so uh, a few days later, I walked, walked through that part of the building and, and I stopped and there's the desk and the computer's all set up. And I said, wow. I said, Harold, this, this desk is really, really nice. I said, man, if, if this is your old one, I'd like to come over to your house and see what, see what you bought for, for your house. And uh, he kind of he paused for a minute and he said, you know, he said, I got to thinking about that. And he said, uh, I knew I was going to be bringing that, this desk and bringing it to the Lord for the Lord's work and in his house. And he said, you know, I decided just to bring him my new one. The old one was working just fine anyway, so I just brought him the new desk. I, I bet nobody in that church knew that other than me. People probably walked by and thought, oh, yeah, we had bought, bought, bought a new desk out of the budget, right? No, there was a guy. There was a guy that was really important to him that he gave his best to the Lord. And what an example to me. I mean, I, I've never forgotten that encounter because I know that the temptation is also true to just give to the Lord things that don't really matter to us, things that we're not going to miss anyway, things that maybe we ought to just throw out to the dogs, right? Look at verse 10. How did God take all this? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Wow. Strong language, right? Is God accepting these offerings? No. He's even saying, shut the door to the temple, to the church. In fact, one of the modern translations says it this way. I wish that someone among you would shut the temple doors so that those worthless sacrifices could not be offered. Those are strong words. And I know some of you are probably looking at me and saying, you know, that's, that's a harsh message, Pastor. Well, you know, I think, I think it's important for us to try to understand how God receives our worship and how He receives our commitment. And I will talk to you about restoration and hope. I will talk to you about, about second chances. Aren't we glad that God is a God of second chances? Is anyone else glad? Okay. Good. But if we don't hear words like this, we won't even know that we need them. Reminds me of Revelation chapter 3. 
There was a church called the Church of Laodicea that was neither hot nor cold. Don't you love it if someone gives you a nice cup of coffee and you're about to drink it and it's not hot? It's not cold, it's not hot, it's just kind of lukewarm. What about someone offering you a nice glass of iced tea, you know? It's not cold, it's been sitting out, doesn't taste good. Well, what does God think about the lukewarm church? Do you remember what it says in Revelation 3? What does he do with them? Spews them out of his mouth. That's, I, I know, I know, it's dramatic language. But you know, it's something that we should pay attention to. Because half-heartedness is something that I'm tempted to be a part of. Look at verse 11. I love verse 11. Because verse 11 is pointing to a day in which God was going to take this message beyond the nation of Israel. He's going to take it beyond the people of Malachi's day. Yeah, it was going to be 400 years, but it was coming. And that's the same message that you and I were able to receive. Generations later, right? Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And you know why that's possible? It's possible because Jesus Christ would be that offering. He would lay down His life. It's about His perfection, not ours. But it's about us receiving the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy that He offers. That's where it begins. And dear friend, you may be here today and you've not yet received that. And I would say that it's a free gift. It's a free gift to receive Jesus as Savior. You can't be on the fence about this. You can't be one of those that's out there, and I've already kind of alluded to some of it. Just talking the talk. There is a commitment that's required. And God recognized it in Malachi's time. God recognized it in the church of Laodicea, and He's recognizing it today as well. So the invitation is to come. The invitation is to receive and to come with a full heart and a real commitment. Now, as I look at this passage, it's so interesting. If you look at verse 14, the very end says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And so, in our text today, from verse 6 to verse 14, we begin with a description of God that is very similar to the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew 6. Make the connection with me, okay? Matthew 6, verse 9. Then we're going to close. Matthew 6, verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You've heard that, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Verse 13 ends it, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. So what do we have here? We have God being described as, as what at the beginning? As a? Father, And we have God being described at the end as a king. That's what helps us with our commitment. That's what helps us to not have an anemic, half-hearted, half-committed spiritual life. By recognizing that the object of our worship is indeed worthy of our worship. Worthy of our lives. Worthy of our sacrifice. Worthy of our serving. Worthy of giving our all and our best to Him. If He is a Father, 
let us honor him. If he is a master, let us serve him. If he is a king, let us bow before him. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that you put upon Malachi's heart. We need his words. We need these thoughts that we can be reminded of your greatness and of your glory. We do appreciate so much your grace and your willingness to restore and to reclaim a people who have strayed. For, Father, we are that people. And we thank you for calling us back. But, Lord, we also pray that you would help us to be a people of resolve, a people of commitment because of who you are and how important that is. Because of what you deserve and ultimately what it is that you will accept. So, Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ. We come to you through his sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, that you would draw us to a deeper walk, a greater level of commitment. I pray for myself. I pray for our church. I pray for the churches of our city as well as our country. That God, if you would restore to us again an understanding of who you are as the Lord of hosts, the Father, the King, that we, as your children, as your people, could respond appropriately. God, continue to be in our worship as we live for you, as we sing to you, even now as we give to you. May you be honored. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said.